to the Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron John. G'day mob, welcome back to another riveting instalment of the Octarine Tree podcast. Today we're chatting with a chappie by the name of Joseph Dennis McKee, or Joe McKee to most. I first met Joe some years ago now, back in the 2000s, when he was playing in what are still one of my favourite Australian bands of all time, called Snowman. Anyone who was around Perth, especially in that era, which was a particularly rich time on the local music scene, will know Snowman. Joe has always struck me as a very, very creative individual, very articulate, really passionate, and kind of prone to finding himself in what I see as being pretty interesting situations, like spending time at sea recording the sounds of the boat and his journey with which to create a record from, which we discuss in this discussion, which we always discuss, discussions. Uh, We also talk about the effect of the environment on creativity, world building, Californian geomantics, the bifurcation of worldview, discord and resolution in US politics, and Joe's creative adventures in general. I was lucky enough to share the stage with Joe and his former band Snowman once upon a time in uh, a past life, and it was lovely to catch up with him again, so I hope you enjoy the chat. So without a further dude, Joe McKee. Joseph Dennis McKee, welcome to the Octarine Tree Podcast. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. You well? I am quite well. I'm uh, noshing a little food. I hope you don't mind the, the occasional slapping of my my cheeks and lips and tongue all over the microphone. That's all right. I like those ASMR kind of saliva, oh, uh, saliva sounds. It's, they're all the rage at the moment. And I'm glad you found your kitten yesterday. We had a false start yesterday because your cat, Eugene, went missing, but he turned up. Right. Uh, yeah, so it was under the bed the whole time. <laughs> right. It was one of those situations. Um, you know, uh, my daughter left the, left the door open and we were kind of panicking for a minute there. On the 4th of July. Uh, this was what's the fifth? Oh, it was the fifth, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. I thought it might have got sk- spooked by the fireworks or something. No, maybe it was seeking independence. <laughs> yeah, totally fitting. I haven't seen you in the flesh for quite some time. You've been out of Western Australia for for years now. Mm. We occasionally rub shoulders back in the day when Snowman was was a thing, yeah. and my band Melange was was gigging. How long have you been out of out of Australia now? Uh, I left in 2008 and um, I did kind of briefly come back, uh, but I was kind of based in Melbourne more than I was in WA. Right. Uh, and that would have been probably maybe the tail end of 2012, I think. The chronology is a little bit blurry, I've got to admit, the last, uh, God, 15 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does get a bit blurry. I created a spreadsheet, mm. like an autochronology of where I was when, because I spent so much time wandering around and living in different places and mm. here to there. It's actually quite revealing. So that's a novel idea. I like that. Maybe yeah. Should do that. Yeah. You know, mm. like, and I had to, I went back through old journals to figure out where I was when and whatnot. And yeah. Yeah, sure. Kind of handy, actually. For one, one day when I write my memoirs. Yeah. 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 That no one's going to read. Exactly. I yeah. I won't even read it. So um, you grew up in Perth, but if I remember correctly, your folks are from the UK. Is that right? Yeah, I was born in the UK as well. Um, okay. So we, you know, I was born in. Uh, I guess the closest reference point would be Slough, which is where the Office was set. That TV show, you know. Right. Yeah. Okay. Quite a grim, grim place. <clears throat> Not far from the airport. Right. Um. And, you know, it was quaint and very British. And then my parents, I suppose <laughs> the driving force for them leaving was really kind of, uh, you know, like all British people, they complain about the weather and right. they wanted to seek some kind of, uh, I guess, greener pastures and find their utopia elsewhere. And so they set off for Western Australia with me and my sister in tow. 
How old uh, were you? I was five. It was uh, 1990. Uh, I think we arrived in August 1990 uh, in Perth and we settled in Rollystone, about an hour outside of Perth, yep. shortly thereafter. Um, and, you know, we went from living, you know, by the M4 motorway to living, uh, you know, on six acres of bush with thousands of acres of nature surrounding us and kangaroos hopping down the driveway and, you know, do you guys? It would have been really novel as a kid. Totally. I mean, I was dressing up as Rambo and getting lost in the woods and, you know, <laughs> having, uh, having a blast. It was definitely, for a period of time, it was a very idyllic way to grow up. Um, yeah. And of course, being that, you know, we were in a, you know, relatively remote area. Yeah. It meant that, you know, there was a lot of retreating into the imagination and, and um, a lot of solo alone time, which, um, which I think is a, is probably an important part of my story, perhaps that, that I had a lot of that kind of, I'm very used to my solitude and and I enjoy my solitude and I'm, grateful that i have that yeah it's something i mean rolly stone back in the mid 90s was very underdeveloped and it is still now i mean it's still a lot of bush but it's something that i've been um lamenting recently watching perth turn from what was called a um big country town yeah to something far more far busier and sprawling and the way you know growing up in perth there's this this sense whether one is aware of it consciously or not of expanse and space and bushland and just this sense that you know you don't have to go far at all to be in a place where there's one person per square kilometer or something right yeah and that's shifting i mean relative to places like where you are now la of course it's still far more sparse but it it really is changing like the swan coastal plain it'll be non-stop suburb from Joondal up to bloody Margaret River within 20 years. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, you know, despite, you know, how many, I guess, the states they're putting in and um, these kind of like cute little sushi houses. Yeah. uh, I still, there's still this unusual kind of eerie sparseness to Perth, I imagine. I mean, I haven't been back for a few years now, but when I went back last, it was very pronounced just because I've been away for quite a while and yeah. living in densely populated cities, you you just forget that, you know, you can walk down a, what I suppose would be considered a busy street in Perth and maybe see eight people, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's very unusual and it, and it had this kind of eerie um, feeling when I was there last. There's, there's it kind of... Uh, Time seems to behave differently when you don't have these kind of, uh, I suppose, reference points of like human movement all the time. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just it, your, your mind kind of perceives time maybe a little bit differently. Yeah, Perth has been kind of famous amongst those who have paid attention to it as one of those places that relative to its pretty small population, relatively small population, it generates a shit ton of creative output and pretty high quality. I mean, not, not always everywhere's got its fucking filler, but um, many people have noted that, that Perth generates really good music and art in many ways. And I wonder, you know, people have asked the question, there was that documentary years ago. Do you remember something in the water about the music scene in Perth? Yeah, I never, I never saw it, but I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it coming. I don't think I saw it either. I was in it, but I never saw the fucking thing. <laughs> I remember, I remember Snowman being in it, but um, I don't recall actually watching it. But the gist was, yeah, yeah, that was essentially what we're talking about. Yeah, you know, I mean, you got parts of ACDC, parts of NXS. Who am I missing? Please accept the following more thorough list of noteworthy Western Australian musical acts as an apology for Byron's momentary lack of recall, brought on by decades of substance abuse. Ammonia, Baby Animals, Birds of Tokyo, Bob Evans, Downside, The Drones, End of Fashion, Eskimo Joe, In Excess, Jebediah, John Butler, Johnny Diesel, Carnival, Kim Salmon, The Kill Devil Hills, Little Birdie, 
melange, but of course. Methyl ethyl, mink muscle creek, pendulum, the Pigram brothers, bond, San Cisco, the scientists, the sleepy Jackson, snowman, story time, sugar army, tame impala, the tigers, the triffids, the valentines, the waifs, and of course, Kevin Bloody Wilson. What 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 what? Do you think that 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 time alone and that sense of space and, and proximity to nature did affect your creative capacity? Yeah, because I've always seen you as someone who has a you know you've got a, you've got a serious portal to some creative energy and content. You seem to be really connected to just something that allows your creativity to flow through you pretty pretty unimpeded from my perspective okay Okay, yeah i mean at times times i suppose do you think you'd be a different creative person if you had grown up in london yeah i I do i think it's all about nurture over nature really i i kind of lean heavily on that way of thinking that your surroundings and the environment that you grow up in really impacts the person that you become and i think that as I was saying before, just the fact that I had so much solitude and I had to kind of entertain myself um, was, yeah, I, I think a big part of that, you know, just whether it be playing with toys and creating these little universes and storylines and um, characters and complex, yeah, uh, dynamics between those characters or whether it be, you know, drawing and creating little comic books as a kid, you're, you're world building and... Mm. As long as world build, building, which really is, is kind of the at the core of what creativity is about, it's like building alternate universe, universes to for, for people to step inside and experience. Um, I think that as long as you're doing that, that's quite transferable to other things creatively and even non-creatively. Actually, I think that it's weirdly transferable in you know. Uh, probably a corporate setting or in a, you know, very in a, in a mm. maybe sport or something like this. But nevertheless, I think it's the most, in the most obvious sense, it is transferable to other art forms. And yeah. And I think just for the sheer fact that I, you know, it's, it, it was a beautiful place to grow up, but it's also, it was, there wasn't a lot of variation. So as a, as a kid, when you're, you know, sensations need to be, um, need to be I guess satiated at all times you know you're you're always looking for something and something new and you you know I I think that world building is the natural inclination for anyone that's alone you you know if you were locked inside a room it's like you know the Anne Frank thing I suppose you're gonna fucking you're gonna write you're gonna draw you're gonna create uh or yeah maybe Anne Frank is a little bit of a uh no I get it I got the reference but you know what I'm saying yeah I mean any it's like you know the russians were always writing these fucking enormous tomes because of freezing cold and locked indoors mm. uh, <laughs> yeah no that, that's actually that's interesting i mean especially coming from someone from directly from the uk where you were actually this might sound a bit dramatic but you were indigenous to that place right right your family i'm assuming you know at least some generations back from what i know of you you're indigenous to that place yeah, Irish, Irish, and you know English for whatever that means, Anglo-Saxon. And I mean, they've they've had Western Europe's had its fair share of cultural disturbances. It's not like you're hunter gatherers on the plains or anything, but right, right, right. But the Western European and Northern European way of life, at least, there was one that was very tied to the seasons, and there was a deep cold, mm. and you would go inside. People would. You know, they'd work their asses off during the autumn to harvest all of the food that had grown to get them through the winter in which they would largely stay inside and knit and sew and mend and sit by the fire and tell a shit ton of stories. Right. You go internal. You know, if you if you if the weather is inclement, you you want to go inside, you want to hibernate and what is more you know there's not much more that's conducive to like internal travel than Mm. using imagination to create and it allows you to escape the mundanity of your (laughs) your your immediate environment being locked in a being in a fucking cave or in a little hut Mm. you know so 
that's probably where our brains would train to travel, you know, in that sense. It's like, what is Joan Didion said that about California? It's a bit of a um, cliche thing. It's used, used a lot out here. It's always referenced, but right. he, she spoke about, um, you know, California being this kind of final frontier mm. for, the, for the settlers, I suppose. And after they hit the Pacific ocean it was like okay well where do we go from here and the idea was that everyone kind of went internal and this is why there is this kind of uh, obsession with the occult and spirituality in california because mm-hmm. it was like well we got to go somewhere i guess this is this is where we go now you know yeah and i i do want to get to that actually we'll circle around to that because that's actually a, a point i wanted to explore with you but mm. back in wa when you formed snowman where did you meet the snowman mob uh well all different times really i met olga at my primary school uh when we were about 10 years old mm-hmm. uh, and we were you know then we were just kind of peers at the school um and then i left in uh, in high school to go to uh well i went to a couple of different schools in high school but eventually met andy at this kind of peculiar school that I ended up at. I ended up at a school called Carmel Adventist College, which was a Seventh-day Adventist private school in the hills, which was essentially a school for dropouts and for expelled kids from other schools. Or in my case, I was bullied out of a Catholic all-boys school and ended up at this school. Um, And Andy, who I met, Aditya Chitawaman, who was Mm -hmm. uh, and is an Indonesian uh, Muslim student who was boarding at the school. Uh, so I met him and he was a insane, wild maniac at the time. He had long yeah. hair and would just like burst out in song in class and had done drugs that I was unaware of. And I was, I was very like a naive and innocent child. And he was this kind of like adult, you know, facial hair and, yeah. and uh, you know, had, girlfriends in grade 12 and you know yeah it was it was very very peculiar because he became something and very different to that nevertheless he probably won't like me saying this on this he strikes me as i mean whenever i think of andy now i can't help but think of the film clip for you are a casino oh yeah you know and speaking before about you know different ways in which creativity expressed themselves he again i see as this kind of v8 engine of creativity right at least when he's performing oh yeah in person he uh he's actually not quiet you know very very engaging and friendly he's and, very mild mallard and mannered and uh yeah. almost like in in a lot of ways which was this incredibly endearing thing about andy very like very warm very warm and then you get him on stage and again for that film clip you're a casino the look in his eyes you know that thousand yards stare but at the same time totally intense like he's somewhere else just expressing uh something super powerful yeah i think andy really used those performances more than i did really as a vehicle for here for to to escape or to i mean it was escapism for me too but i mean for him he was really i think he was escaping some of the um the kind of discipline that was required in parts of his life right. with his religious beliefs and with his, the fact that he was, you know, I mean, he was studying civil engineering and had jobs with civil engineering firms during our touring and recording of albums. So he had all sorts of stresses and family matters that were, you know, uh, far, he had far more responsibility than yeah, that. like restrictive parameters that he could he could mm-hmm. burst through when he was performing. I suppose right. So for him, exactly, it was a it was catharsis in that sense, you know. So Snowman, the four of you, I always remember being kind of interested in the fact that you were from the UK. Olga is Icelandic, Andy is Indonesian, and Ross, if I remember, is first generation Italian. Is that correct? Yeah, I, his dad, I think, came over as a little boy from Italy, so he was second generation. Sorry, yes, second generation, my apologies. So for those listening who aren't from Perth or aren't, aren't aware, Snowman came on the scene, and I recall reading a really, really early review. Did you guys, like, debut at a band competition? Am I remembering correctly? 
We definitely, that was some of our early shows was at a band competition, yeah. Yeah, and I, I recall the review from that. Oh, yeah. Right, and it was kind of like the first I had heard of Snowman and the first, well, if not the first and extremely early broadcasting of the existence of Snowman. And from the get-go, you guys really captured the Perth imagination. You know, you guys were loved, incredibly loved by everyone in that scene. Do you have like a moment that you remember kind of thinking, holy shit, this is working and this is great and this feels amazing. Uh, I'm, yeah, I, it's not a specific moment. I do think that I was really enjoying that, that time. Um, but, you know, was also dealing with whatever personal life things that were going on at the time too. I was a young person trying to get, trying to really shape my identity which I think is kind of what your 20s is all about really like wearing these hats and trying to work out who you present to the world you know so when I look back on that time I see like an enormous amount of fun but I also put ridiculous kind of pressures on myself and um and expectations upon myself which I don't think were helpful at the time. Like I was, I, you know, so mm-hmm. it's not as, yeah. I, I don't think there's one moment that I can really pinpoint as being, okay, you know, this is, I mean, I'm, I think there was probably numerous. It was right. Yeah. It's, I, I, that's, it's a, it's a big topic to, to kind of distill into a sentence, but, Yes, I guess the answer is yes. I definitely had a sense of of this kind of uh, wonder and awe about the whole experience at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something that, in, with the benefit of hindsight, that I realize is that it's very unusual what happened and the collection of humans that were in that group and the the way that it all kind of came about and the community that surrounded it, it was, um, it was a really special and, and beautiful thing that happened. And I'm very, yeah, very grateful for that. Um, and I think that at the time I just thought that was, that was just the way that it happened. That, that, that's, that's just things normally happened. I, I don't think I realized how special it was. It seems so natural and I'm not saying there wasn't effort involved because I could see how committed you all were. You guys generated and fostered a real love from the Perth music scene and a response, just like an amazing response. And I remember another review where, what was it? What was it? It was someone's album launch, Capital City or something, and there's this amazing lineup, like 11th He Reaches London and you guys in Capital City. And by that stage, you guys were so embedded into the psyche of the music scene that the reviewer totally respectfully, like it wasn't dismissive at all, but was just like when it came to the paragraph to review your set, it was like, and yes, Snowman did their amazing, amazing thing again. I don't have to even go over it. Hooray, we all love Snowman deeply. And that, <laughs> that was it. It was like two sentences and moved on to the next band just because everyone got it. Yeah, it was a really natural. I think you hit the, the nail on the head with the word natural. It, was, it did kind of fall into place very naturally and so much I think about the word momentum when I think about the the, the way that it all happened. There was this very natural momentum that kept going on and Mm. it was a hard thing to stop even though at times you wanted it to stop and I'm not you know I know uh you know we were a small band in a fairly small isolated community but um nevertheless it felt like there was this momentum and sometimes you wanted to get the fuck off of that 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 roller like a snowball being pushed down a hill yeah well there we go nice pun thank you exactly but you mean you caught the attention of the likes of Interpol, who you toured with in uh, through Australia. I remember catching that gig; that was pretty cool. Right? Yeah. Did you tour internationally at all? Yeah, I mean, we moved over to London and then you know played shows in Europe and and the UK. You guys moved to London to kind of expand your horizons, so to speak, and to record a record, which was Absence. And the uh, you had a couple of different cracks at it, if I recall. And the result was incredible. It's fucking amazing. It's a beautiful record. But what happened there? You didn't end up touring that record, did you? No, I mean, 
look, even when we were in Australia and, you know, prior to moving to the UK, I think there is maybe a misunderstanding about why we went to London. Um, I think there is, you know, the, the obvious uh, probably perception from the outside would be, okay, they're going to go and crack this new market or something. Mm. But, you know, it was more about just getting away than it was going toward. In a way, yeah, because, I mean, we were already, I mean, we were on the verge of breaking up as a band during the before that um, and kind of, you know, I think by that point, those, the kind of expectations I was putting on myself and the pressures that I was putting on myself weren't really making me a very happy person. And really moving to London was about, well, I don't want to be in Australia just kind of doing these little victory lap things and, right. and not, you know, I, di- I didn't want to play for the same people over and over again. It didn't feel like, it didn't feel very gratifying after a certain point. So it was, a, it was really about, okay, well, I have a British passport, you know, Olga had an Icelandic one and yada, yada. So it was fairly mm-hmm. easy for us to kind of get over there and create a new life because uh, I'm, I'm a fairly restless person and uh, I just wanted to experience different things. So, so it was more about like growth through challenge and right, stimulation right. than it was going over to conquer the world. Right, absolutely. Because, I mean, I, I will hand it, to us in in a, in a certain sense that I think that we were smart enough kids to realize that what we were doing was not, you know, commercially going to set us up for life, you know? Right. And I think the, real, the realities of that became more and more apparent. I mean, we, yeah, we were a fairly, fairly esoteric left field kind of group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when it, when it kind of fell apart in London, it was really, because we didn't want to go through the motions of um, starting again and kind of, uh, I suppose, trying to build that momentum again that I spoke of before, you know, like. Right. And that's fine. I mean, I'm kind of happy that we we left it in the way that we did because we were all living together in a fucking cockroach infested flat and just getting a little bit on each other's nerves. And Ross and Olga wanted to move to Iceland and I was in a relationship with someone and wanted to, you know, devote some energy to that and to, to some other musical projects. And, um, and Andy was, you know, pretty ensconced in his career. He was up in Cambridge actually. And um, so we were just ready for something different, to be honest, you know? Yeah. Well, you created something different. I mean, that record is really beautiful. And one, one day I'd be very curious to hear what exists of the first sessions because you actually, if I remember right, you guys got quite deep into it and then scrubbed it and started again from scratch. Is that right? Kind of. We, went, we, we, we kind of demoed the whole album and... Um, it was never really like we recorded it twice, start to finish, but we did do these this kind of demo run through of the record, right? And then there was a big break. There was a gap in between when we actually, you know, started working on the final thing. And those demos ended up being the kind of beds, the, the skeletons that we kind of built upon anyway. So those initial recordings were included, but um, yeah, we just kind of built built upon them. Yeah, and I can't what was kept and what wasn't from the original demos. But um, a lot of the really kind of, I think that's why it still feels, you know, quite earthy in some sense, despite it being a fairly etheric kind of record. Um, I think the fact that those demos are still in there, Mm -hmm. yeah, gave it a kind of grounded quality, which, yeah, I'm glad we kept. I I always get visions of the Heath, if and when I, I return to that record, I get an image of the heathlands, so like earthy and undulating, almost wave-like, but uh, this mist, mm. like a real, it's very misty, particularly the title track, Absence, is very misty. Yeah. You, after Snowman, I remember you taking a boat trip and recording an album, recording the sounds that you had recorded on that trip. Can you explain that a little bit, walk us through that? Yeah, well, that was after I moved over here to LA. Um, yeah, I boarded a cargo ship 
from it, I bought it in Japan and uh, spent a month at sea, you know, on this ship collecting field recordings and playing the ship essentially like a like a giant gamelan or you know industrial instrument. So you booked and took that trip with that conscious intention to do that. Yeah. So basically, the way it came about was a, a friend of mine is a visual artist here, uh, uh, primarily painter uh and he one of his collectors happened to be this this shipping magnate he owns all these these cargo ships and um the guy they struck up a conversation about the possibility of my friend cole going aboard the ship and and treating it as an artist residency where he would just kind of create work in isolation on aboard a cargo ship Mm -hmm. it grew when we kind of had some chats about it into it being this kind of documentary filmed about that process. And he invited me to come on board and do the sound initially. And I said, well, why don't we do one better? And I'll, I'll compose the score from the sound of the ship. And this is something that I'd been playing with a little bit. I'd been recording and playing the architecture of buildings, um, you know, uh, for my sound art practice that, uh-huh. it, up, you know, being exhibited at a couple of shows here and there. And um, so I had already, you know, um, I guess acquainted myself with what I would do and how I would approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I went and I just had a little field recorder, a little Zoom field recorder. Very different Zoom to what we're speaking on now, of course. But, yeah, uh, yeah went around the ships, you know, and just spent – a month at sea. Were you primarily compiling a bank then to then mix and arrange and whatnot later, or were you arranging on, on board? Yeah, and I was, I was, I was also arranging it, you know, aboard the ship as well. I, I had a lot of a lot of time on my hands, so mm. there, was no, there was no contact with the outside world. You know, there was no internet, there was no phone signal signal. So we were, I mean, all we had to do was create world make. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's what. I, yeah, I composed this funny little, funny little, uh, I don't know, uh, music concrete kind of industrial ambient thing, which is, yeah, which is available to listen to. I once um, saw this kind of meme thingy that said postmodern art is, um, I could have done that plus, yeah, but you didn't. And I take my hat off to you for actually making that occur because the amount of times I actually think that like if I had honoured and listened to and followed through on countless impulses to do some kind of installation or project or expressive something, Mm -hmm. I would have really not only enjoyed the process but really been quite chuffed with the outcome. Yeah. But it's, it's a knife's edge decision. You know, you could so easily discard that impulse and not do it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. again using that word momentum like you know i was the idea was presented to me and the momentum was the thing that allowed me to actually uh do it you know uh and the momentum didn't belong to me the momentum was really in the hands of uh the the artist who had kind of instigated that um so i'm very grateful to him for that the oak Tearing tree team would like to invite you to sit back Relax and enjoy the dulcet musings of Joseph Dennis McKee, preforming, I'll Be Your Host, released on Baby Race Records. Excelsior.
Okay, so LA, you're in LA now. You've been there for how many years? Uh, eight years almost. Okay. So I'm really curious, Perth and Los Angeles, well, Western Australia and California have many notable similarities. And they do. One, they are two of the five recognised Mediterranean climate regions of the world, which I have a particular interest in studying. Yeah. And... Obviously, the scale of population is completely different and the history is also very different, but it has parallels. They were developed relatively later to the rest of their respective nations at large. Mm -hmm. They were like something of a frontier. Obviously, they're on the west coasts. There's like a coastal plain with hills behind it. Again, the scale is different because... California is geologically active and Australia is very old and stable, but very similar climates, very similar way in which there is sprawling development, which is relatively new. I remember thinking I would really not enjoy LA. I don't know why. I think I was just equating it with the worst I had seen of it. But upon arrival, I fucking loved it. I loved LA and you were before when you were saying how it was the physical frontier of the, the Western movement of the, you know, the U S colonial project. And when they got there, I'd never thought about that before. Like, well, where do we go from here? Well, we go inward. Right. But it seems as if it's almost like the capital of novelty in the world, California, whether it's Silicon Valley or, or Silicon breasts. Silicon breast, fuck, totally. Great pun. Or, um, you know, music industry, film industry, art industry in general, and the occult, metaphysics. Mm. Any Anything novel and progressive and forward-thinking seems to have a chance there to actually uh, manifest in a way. And I do wonder... Manifest destiny. Yeah, again, well done. You're on fire. <laughs> I wonder, is Hollywood Hollywood because... Hollywood was made there or did that landscape create what is Hollywood? Because I'm actually interviewing a bloke from a permaculture practitioner who lives in the Ojai Valley 
Oh, yeah. And they're just there are these places. What I got coming out of the land in, in Los Angeles was some geomantic like richness. Like there is something going on in that part of the world, in my opinion. Do you relate to that at all? Well, listen, I mean, I don't um I mean to answer the the first kind of component of that question, I think very specifically Cecil B. DeMille and the early, you know, uh studio filmmakers mm-hmm. came over here specifically for the fact that there was more land that was cheaper and the light was uh more conducive to making film with the with the with the technology that they had, right? So right. I think from a very pragmatic standpoint, that's what it was. And then you could I suppose you could argue that there is some kind of uh, vortex or magnetic pull that the that the landscape may or may not have, um, which is speculated upon, you know, at no end here. Right. There is, there is a sense. Um, how do I how do I word this? Um, it is, you know, I think there is the ultimate world building that goes on here. Mm-hmm. You know, I that Hollywood essentially is that, you know, you are, you're, you're, you're creating alternate realities yeah. and alternate states all the time. And this idea that, uh, you know, that Hollywood and the occult and various, you know, cults and, you know, religious mythologies mm-hmm. that have been birthed here, um science and scientology scientology and uh i mean any number of things i think yeah. there's a uh blavinsky or or is it madame blavinsky was that her name blavatsky yeah blavatsky yeah. right thank you i mean you've got manly p hall and krishnamurti right. and the early yoga like what's his name yoganandi Alistair crowley came over here and right exactly right you know, it was obviously a, a draw to it and i Look, I think that some of it's purely coincidental, and I think that there is an element of people coming here for the sheer fact that they, just like any form of gentrification that goes on, the artists move to uh, the cheaper, (laughs) more affordable places where they have more land, Mm -hmm. and then inevitably money follows. And I think there is an element of that. I mean, that's exhibited by the fact that Again, Cecil B. DeMille and whoever else came over here for the sheer fact that there was land and there was light to to create. So I think there is an element of that. Um, and I think that it coincided with this timeline of the occult and uh, kind of these new age sensibilities and ideas that were very hip yeah. to that creative crew at the time, you know. Um, and I think it's that's what makes the place so so dangerous as well because – what we're seeing obviously now is this, this kind of horseshoe politics where you have these extremist ideologies or conspiracy theories and this conspiritualism kind of uh, intersection that, that happens here within this kind of new age wellness occult kind of community here. Yeah. You know, I, this like suspension of, and I think this is probably a really key term to, to link it all or thread it together is this suspension of disbelief, which is so important to us and our relationships with filmmaking or movies, going to see movies, there is a suspension of disbelief. And I think the same suspension of disbelief is required if you want to have faith in any dogmatic or, or, or any kind of spirituality really. Um, So this suspension of disbelief is, rampant here you know like a self-granted permission to really lie to yourself (laughs) that's a a almost pathological form of world building right right and in the u.s at the moment you've probably seen me shooting my mouth off about it on social media but it just seems to be fucking nuts fascinating it's fascinating look i think that we are like I'm, i'm a fairly moderate person in my views and i think that these things, these extremes, these polarities will always be there and have always been there. Um, I think that unfortunately the internet allows for these, uh, for these, these kind of declarative statements to live on longer than they need to, you know, like having a beer with someone and then making a declarative statement, you can kind of laugh at and brush off and move on in the conversation or you, or you can have a dialogue and this kind of malleable um, or conversation and, and, and 
you can sway each other's opinions and it's far more um, balanced, right? But unfortunately, the internet doesn't work like that. It does. It's not conducive to healthy dialogue. It's it's a declarative statement after declarative statement, which is sealed off in a little sarcophagus <laughs> forever yeah. that you can view. Uh, and I don't think that's helpful because one thing that I know for certain is that all of this is very, very fluid. And and I'm, when I say all of this, I mean, I mean all of this. I mean, existence is very fluid and changeable. And um, this is something that isn't spoken about enough. You know, I think that, yes, you have the left and the right, but it's these things are a part of harmony together. I mean, it's like discordance and, and, and harmony in music. You know, you, they are important side by side in order to create a beautiful piece of music, you know, without the discord, the, the major tension, not going to right exactly without the uh, dissonance, the, the resonance is not going to be as sweet. That resolution. Yeah. Right. Right. You need them both. And this is, you know, like in, you know, when you speak about like Taoism or the yin and yang, you know, it's like, we've known this for a very, very, very long time. And, um, I, it would be nice if there was more of that middle ground represented in the media because, and perhaps it is, but it, perhaps it's just boring for people. If it bleeds, it leads. Right. Right. You know, it's like, it, it needs to be outrage. It needs, then there's this kind of, currency of outrage that uh, people are feeding on. It's almost a banal statement to say that we are, of course, now obviously living in a um, pretty discordant and tense moment in history where there's a real bifurcation of worldviews at the moment. Mm -hmm. And it'll Mm -hmm. be very, very curious to see because it can't last forever. And I, I don't believe that we're going to go the way of the dodo. This will resolve in one way or another for better or worse. And be very curious to see this moment in history in the rear view mirror in a generation or two's time, Mm -hmm. how it resolves itself. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What the agreed upon storyline narrative will be. Yeah. Or will there be many that manage to somehow coexist? I don't know. I think I think there will be. I think that that's another that's another um, nuance or idiosyncrasy of this moment is that everything is. Uh, I guess you can choose your own adventure. There is, you can <laughs> have vastly different experiences depending on. I guess what I'm getting at is when every niche is presented to you there is no one agreed upon narrative anymore and i think that's a lot to do with the fact that media has been you know blasted into these kind of multi-faceted full spectrum kind of thing where you have like yeah. every shade of the spectrum is represented online or something mm-hmm. you know? and um whereas once upon a time we had the culture and we had the counterculture that was it you choose what yeah on you know yeah totally it's like i see it as like these poles that we've always used to describe things culture counterculture um Mm. left right authoritative and um libertarian or whatever Mm. it's not just a spectrum now it's not even like a an extra axis that's right been thrown in there it's like a sphere yeah yeah you're right and it's like in every direction now um the volume seems to be turned up Mm. at the moment yeah it's pretty fascinating and my my kind of overwhelming response to it all is to simplify and to and to really focus on the things that that I can uh I suppose work with and things within the sphere of my control uh because you know you you it's maddening to to get lost in all the other ocean of noise that's going on do you get out on country or a bit I think I remember seeing you having some adventures in some pretty interesting beautiful places yeah, I try to, you know, I, I have a house in the desert, which I, which has been great for me to retreat to, you know, it's really, it's out there near Joshua Tree and it's, it's a bloody haunts, beautiful, invocative, haunting part of the world out that way. Yeah, it's really special and uh, it's definitely, it settles the equilibrium, you know, LA is a, you know, this is a nice thing about Los Angeles is that you really, it doesn't take a lot for you to be able to disappear and feel as though you are you know, grounding yourself in, in nature. Um, you're kind of surrounded by it here and you, it, you can have whatever you want. If you want the snow, you can drive to the snow in 45 minutes. If you want the ocean, you've got that yada, yada, yada. Desert, 
forest. It is remarkable. That struck me when I first went there and I, first time I went up to Panga Valley. Yeah. Minutes out of Santa Monica up past Malibu Way and you're in this Oaken Valley. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? Of course, you've got a daughter in LA now. I do. Mm-hmm. Juniper, she's eight years old. Oh, she'll be eight in August. Uh, yeah, and she she's my kind of timestamp. She helps me remember exactly where I was in the last eight years, at least. I'm starting to get a better timeline of that. <laughs> okay. No need for an Excel spreadsheet just yet. Not not for the last eight years, but maybe before that. Creative-wise, are you making music or are you you're focusing on Baby Race Records? Is that something you put much time into? Not really. I, I mean, I have uh, a few things that I'm working on. I have, a, I have this thing called the Open Source Community Choir, which is essentially a reaction to, you know, making music within the framework of, uh, for lack of a better word, capitalism. Um, mm-hmm. You, I, I think, so the, the, the choir is essentially a gathering of, of people. There's no, you don't need to be musical in, at all. It's just requires for you to have a, a larynx and you show up and you, sit down and you sing and we don't sing words. We don't sing songs. We it's, it's essentially a, a guided improvised harmonizing group. Right. And the reason for this, the initial kind of catalyst for this was trying to get back to the roots of like, what is the purpose and reasoning behind making music in the first place without all of the, the trappings and the kind of, um, layers that have been kind of stacked upon it over the years you know if you if you remove um currency if you remove um i I mean when do we sing together we sing we sing at sporting events we sing you know happy birthday we sing national anthems there's always or or in church right so there's always an agenda and it's it's trying to remove the agenda and the also remove the the ego and remove these um other elements that we associate with making music it's also not a performance so we don't perform on stage or anything like this we all we all sit in a circle and it might sound very woo-woo in new age but the idea is actually quite the contrary it's supposed to be really kind of earthy in that it's connecting with our bodies and connecting with with this i guess uh helping to break away these inhibitions that we have around singing because for some reason, it's kind of been weeded out unless there's an agenda behind it, weeded out of society. Um, so it's been really amazing to to have people of all demographics and ages come together and sing. And, you know, some people have all sorts of inhibitions around their voice. And by the end of it, they're, you know, squawking like a tropical bird and... <laughs> you know, and, and it's quite empowering for them and they leave pretty elated and, and to speak to what we were saying earlier, you know, that's a transferable skill set where all of a sudden you're using your unique contribution to a, to a collaborative effort to make something better or, or more powerful or more beautiful or more hideous or whatever it may be. And, you are you are celebrating that unique quality of yours, right? And and that that's transferable into all aspects of community, whether it be fucking workplace or you know your basketball team or whatever. You know, it's about it's about community. Um, and so that's been really that's been really beautiful to kind of tap back, to, like connect back to that because I think one of the things that uh, you know, being involved in music for so long, one of the things that I have most difficulty with is the, yeah, again, all of the the trappings around it, you know, the fact that it's essentially, you know, touring music is essentially fueled by the alcohol industry and, yeah. uh, and that there is so much, so much of performances around the ego and, and around this, which for me is not a healthy thing. Like I, I recognize that that's not very helpful for me, especially being a dad, you know, like mm. cool has no currency when you're a dad, you know, <laughs> it's really, totally. It's amazing. You know this. Yeah, exactly. And it's a relief to it's, it's a, it's a weight off. It is relieving. Nothing grows you up quicker than having kids. Right. Um, as daunting. And grows you down in the most wonderful way, because all of a sudden you have this, um, you have this beeline to your childhood as well. And, so it allows you to be silly and playful again, which 
and that word playful I think is really important and applies to the choir as well and and music making in general like it, as soon as the playfulness is gone from making music I mean it, it is play it's and that's essentially what it's born from it's born from right, play right and you know to access that through juniper and and to um to strip away all of these kind of silly silly uh egoic components of, of music making or creativity it's it's yeah it's, it's a relief it's refreshing and it's so that's one thing that i'm doing and baby race is uh, baby race records is essentially a means to um release things in my community and beyond that just it came about just because i wanted to release some of my stuff and couldn't be bothered <laughs> sending it out to people and yeah you know, it was it's not a very flattering process to um shop your wares around and i've never really enjoyed that part of it so i so I set up a label with my friend here and we release our friend's music and and we have a book that we're releasing soon and things like this so lovely it sounds like you are engaging in if not actually actively fostering a sense of community where you are well that is um again like with the benefit of hindsight the only reason why the band that I was in had any, the, re, the only reason why there was any joy or um, the only success that I can really draw from that is the fact that we had a, a, a wonderful, overwhelmingly positive experience of community. And that was in Perth. And then it was in, you know, Europe too. Like the, just like the generosity and love. And it sounds I know it sounds a little corny to say it, but it's, um, and I think the the world could do with a dose of this, perhaps, you know, I don't the kind of like peace, love, meditation kind of 60s thing, but I do mean like this collaborative nature that is inherent to humanity, which again, I think is maybe a little overlooked. The reason why civilization functions as it is, is because we collaborate with one another on a daily basis. So, more than we do um you know it's certainly more than we scream each scream at each other on the internet right right you know (laughs) like the overwhelming thing that i get is that you know most of us are trying to be decent to each other and uh and so yeah you know i can i have a tendency to kind of um be a little bit solitary at times so it's very important for me to actively seek out community and, and build community and it makes me happier. And I know that it, it's good for Juniper and it's, and it makes life far, far more rich and, and enjoyable, you know? Lovely. Lovely. All right, mate. Probably kept you long enough. All right. Before I let you go, is there anywhere other than just like Googling you or snowman, is there anywhere people can go in particular to shop your wares or just to sniff out what you do? Is there any kind of hub online? Uh, there's joemckey.xyz. joemckey.xyz. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. All right, mate. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you taking the time. It was lovely to see your handsome face again, albeit briefly. Likewise. Yeah, it was nice catching up. Yeah, best of luck. And if and when the Queen's representatives allow me to get out of Western Australia, if I'm in right. LA, I'll say good day, have a cup of coffee. Absolutely. I look forward to it. All right, mate. Thanks again. All the best, eh? Take care. Bye. See you, mate. Ta-da.
Listen to 